I was born and raised in Austin, Texas, and have recently reconnected with Deep Eddie Pool. It is one of my favorite places in the entire universe. And I found out from my mom that when she was pregnant with me, she used to swim there. When I have a bad day, or when I'm having a great day, it's like church for me to go to Deep Eddy and get in that cool water, and I have to swim real fast for the first lap or two, and after that, I'm home. I'm Martha Pinkoffs, and this is I Love You So Much. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated. I'm your host, Tali Mosley. I'm Omar Gayaga. And I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Lady Bird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman. This month, the star of the CW show Supernatural opened up a brewery just outside of Austin. We chatted with Liquid Austin columnist Ariana Aber about why Jensen Ackles picked Dripping Springs to get into the brewing business. We brought in Ryan Raya of Chaparral Ice to get us pumped for the Winter Olympics and fill us in on what's hot in Austin's winter sporting leagues. We called up former Austinite and chocolate connoisseur Megan Giller to get her advice on picking out the best chocolate for Valentine's Day. And in this week's Web Report, we chatted with Eric Webb about why a recent story about a Comal County judge hearing the voice of God blew up online. And we'll conclude with the toast, a set of recommendations of things we feel you should be checking out right now. Let's start with Ari, who explains why brewers have recently banded together to form a political action committee and why new breweries and brew pubs should be on your radar. Ari, welcome. Uh, we're here to talk about breweries and some news about some celebrity where celebrity culture meets brewing culture in Austin. Tell us what's going on. Thank you for having me. Um, so basically, let's see, about a month ago, or no, earlier this month, actually, it seems like it was so long ago, um, the Supernatural star Jensen Ackles opened a brewery with his family, um, so his wife and then her brother and um, her parents. They opened... This brewery in Dripping Springs called Family Business Beer Co. Yum. It sounds great. So how'd they get into brewing? They were homebrewers, right? Yeah. So Jensen and his brother-in-law, Gino, were kind of just homebrewing on the side in uh, California and realized that this was kind of something really cool that they wanted to try to, you know, do professionally. But to their credit, they were like, okay, yeah, we're, we're not really that great at actually brewing. So let's hire somebody else to open when we open our own place mm-hmm. to kind of take that on. And so who'd they hire? They hired, uh, his name is Nate, and he was formerly the brewer for 512 Brewing. So like all the 512 recipes you love, like 512 Pecan Porter. Wow. Yeah. He he was the reason for, for those. That was Local from, power brewer. Yeah. yeah from, from your story, it was like he was the guy who invented the pecan porter. I was like, I've had that. I've oh, yeah. had that. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we should step back and say what, what Supernatural is. Supernatural is a show that started on the CW way back in the day. Yes, it's in season 13 now. Yeah, 13 seasons Holy of television. Uh, two actors in it, uh, Jason Eccles and Jared Padalecki. And, like, when you're on a TV show that's gone for 13 seasons, on even if it's on, like, not one, one of the main networks, like, you've got a little bit of money to play with to, to do something like this. So, yes. so yay for him. And aren't both of them involved in the brewery to some extent? Um, I mean, I think Jared's just a big fan. But, oh, and uh, he lives here. And he li- the they both, yeah. yes, they okay, both cool. live here. Yeah, they 
So what did you like about the brewery? I mean, you are you're a beer reporter, but you're also a beer critic. So have you tried some of the, the beers? What do you think? I have, and I, I actually really enjoyed them. Um, I think they have a good kind of wide sampling of beer for, for you know, if somebody likes IPAs more or if they like darker beers. They kind of have it all. So that's what I thought was really good. So it's also open in Dripping Springs, which has become a huge destination for beer, spirits, and some wine. Yes, definitely. Um, so just down the road, there's a whole bunch of places you can go to, you know, enjoy all of those things. Yeah. So they're on Hamilton Pool Road. Is that correct? Yes. But then over on Fitzhugh. And tell us about some of the other um, establishments in Hayes County that people either may have heard of, or I know there's there are new places that I haven't even heard of yet. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, like you mentioned, Fitzhugh Road. Um, there's a Jester King Brewery, which a lot of people have heard of, but mm-hmm. it's, I guess, not for everybody. It's a farmhouse-style brewery, so they do a lot of sours and such. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you just keep going down that road. There's a cidery down there, Argus. There's another small brewery called Last Stand. They do a lot of great IPAs and, and kind of hoppy stuff. Um, and then there's also Revolution Spirits. That's a distillery. And then Treaty Oak is also down the road now. So Wow. So I know there's going to be, like, brewery fans that are going to want to go check it out just because it's a new brewery. They want to go see what's what's what, and th- maybe they're fans of 512. Uh, and want to see what what, mm-hmm. what uh, the brewer's up to now. But, like, if you're a Supernatural fan, like, are you going to see Jensen Eccles hanging around? Are you going to be <laughs> able to, like, get his autograph? But what's the deal with – is he going to be around? He will be around – my understanding is he'll be around on weekends, but uh, – so he's still filming the current season of Supernatural, so – Up in, like, Vancouver, right? Yes, yeah. so he's going to be there for a lot of the time. But I know that uh, one of the Austin 360 content producers, Gabby – she actually was there a couple weekends ago, and she she and her friend saw him like pruning trees on the property or something. So <laughs> he's he's like, haven't you, know. you been on TV for thirteen seasons? <laughs> yeah. get autograph? Well, there is another reality hook or another t- TV hook out there. The Duck Dynasty. Two of the people in oh, Duck Dynasty yes. have a food truck. Yes. I, it's Jeff and Jessica. Right? Yes. So like the young, I don't know too much about Duck Dynasty, but like the younger brother or something. I think they have their own spinoff show. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, but they have, uh, I, don't, I can't remember what kind of food they're serving out of the trailer there. It's but kind of a Southern style Cajun. Oh, there you yeah. Go. So that's one thing. I mean, when I go out to breweries, breweries are an alternative to a bar or a restaurant. And breweries kind of hit that sweet spot where you've got both. Well, usually the ones I go to, I, I'd like to go where I can get something good to eat. Some of them have their own food operations. A lot of them have food trucks. What is it about this marriage of good food and good beer that makes it so that these things are just proliferating. I mean, you said there's something like 60 breweries in Central Texas, or and that includes yeah. some that are in the works. That's more than in other areas of the state, it seems. Yeah, and I think I think just Austin in general just really loves to eat and then have a beer to go along with it. You know, I think um, I've always noticed that uh, Pint House Pizza, the two both locations of of that brew pub, are always packed, and I think it's because uh, parents really love having a place where they can kind of you know, chill with a pint and then their kids, obviously it's very family friendly. Their kids can go and have pizza and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just very appealing. So, Well, that's also a place where you can lounge. You know, when you go out Mm -hmm. to eat, there's a very clear beginning and end to that experience. You know, you get in, you order your food. As soon as you're done eating, you know, there's this expectation that then you move along. And and I feel like at a brewery, you can lounge and be more laid back. And, you know, if you want to go to a kid-friendly brewery, there are definitely those. If you don't want to go to a kid-friendly brewery, there are plenty of those, too. (laughs) (laughs) Kid-friendly brewery (laughs) doesn't sound right, exactly. Uh, But, like, I've been to, like, Live Oak, and, that you know, they have that little play area outside where you can just hang out and and play, yeah. you know, play 
horseshoes or whatever. Yes. And as, as brewers have told me in the past, you know, it's like, we have families too. Mm-hmm. We like to be able to have a place where we can just take our kids mm-hmm. and chill. Mm-hmm. All of us kind of just have fun. Good so. thing we also know how to be responsible when we drink. Yes. <laughs> yes. So there actually, there's been a lot of news though in this industry just in the past week. You, we were just posting something today about a pack that the craft brewers have formed. Tell us about that. Yeah. So uh, basically the Texas Craft Brewers Guild, which is sort of the organization that, you know, advances the interests of craft brewers in the state. They just announced that they are forming a political action committee, a PAC, um, that will basically help them fight for some of the rights that they are trying to get in the state. So what has this latest battle been? They just lost in the in the legislature last year, didn't they? Yes. Yeah, so what they had hoped for was that they would be able to push for a law allowing breweries to sell beer to go from their tap rooms. Mm-hmm. So breweries, ver- breweries like... Um, like Live Oak versus um, Pine House Pizza, which is a brew pub. Mm-hmm. Um, and so right now at brew pubs, you can take home a growler of their mm-hmm. beer, but at, at these other breweries, you you just have to drink on site and that's right. it. And the distinction is that one is a, one is supposedly a restaurant and one is it's, Yeah, like- more or less. It's Yeah, they're just two different licenses. Um, and yeah, a lot of times brew pubs do have kitchens. They don't have to, but they do. Mm-hmm. Um and so a lot of breweries have kind of been coming, becoming brew pubs because they want to be able to do that, which is something that all 49 other states allow for. But that might limit their ability to distribute to grocery stores and produce canned beers, bottled beers, if they take that route. No. So a- for brew pubs, yes, they are limited in how much they can make and then distribute to. Right. And so that's uh, like Live Oak would have to decide between giving up their grocery business. Right. Which is pretty strong just to have, you know, uh, on sale, on site sales. So that th- the change in laws would help them, would give them some more options. So we're thinking the pack that, that is forming is to address issues like that. Yes. And so then, yes. And last, um, the legislative session, they also ended up, so that bill basically died mm-hmm. pretty quickly. And then they ended up having also to fight um, over preventing this other law that the beer distributors pushed for that mm-hmm. they really didn't like because it kind of limited the growth of craft beer, craft brewers. So so you've been covering the industry for several years now. What are some of the things that have struck st- stuck with you? I mean, I think you kind of got into this as a, as a craft beer person, you learned, and then cocktails and wine, but beer has kind of been the heart of this. Yeah. But, but uh, you were just talking off mic about how the community still seems to be as strong as it ever has been. Will you talk a little bit about how you've seen that community evolve? Yeah. Um, so one thing that you know, I always kind of profile every new brewery that opens. And one thing that they always say is, you know, they got into the industry, not just because of it, not just because it's beer, but because they love that it's a community. They all help each other out. You know, they talk about how, oh, yeah, I got this, you know, old piece of equipment from from independence. And then these guys told me how to, you know, handle this kind of yeast. And Mm. so it's just it's a the understanding, I guess, that, you know, a rising tide raises all ships. They're like, we're all in this together and, you know, we're not competing so much as, you know, all just offering the same, you know, but different kind of thing. And, so. it, and it's also sort of uh, coincided with the rise of the Austin restaurant scene, that these restaurants are also promoting a lot of these these brews and, and breweries. And then you go out, like, I mean, the last time I went to Live Oak was because I had an amazing 
uh, beer that I tried at Barley Swine. Hmm. And I was like, I'm going to the brewery to get more of that. Like, that's the only other place I can find it. So that that is how I ended up at Live Oak. So I think the restaurant scene has also mm-hmm. really contributed to that flourishing. Absolutely. Yeah. The bartenders really advocate for different types of beer. And, you know, I, I, I think listeners, if you're out there wondering how the heck do you even get into this space, don't be afraid to ask for samples. You know, if you are a, a person who only drinks like Fat Tire or something, don't be afraid to go to a bar and ask a bartender, hey, can I just try a little bit? Of, you know, here's a beer that I like. I'd like to try something that's locally produced. Can I have a sample of maybe something that you think I might like? And just as a way to sort of break out of your comfort zone. Ari, do you have any other thoughts on how, um, you know, listeners can explore this board? world and learn more about it? Uh, yeah, actually, um, we have on Austin 360, we have a uh, what we call the Boozery Guide, and that kind of has a little roundup of all the different, not just breweries, but, you know, cideries, distilleries um, in Austin that are any any of them. So That's really cool. And, yeah. and so many places offer flights, too. That was another, another oh, yeah. thing that I will do if I'm new to a brewery and haven't ever tried anything is get a sampler to try a little bit of everything. Yes. Yeah, I was going to ask. East Ciders has a has a brewery or a cidery. Yeah, right. Th- yeah, they do. They well, so that yeah, they call it their collaboratory. Um, but the, yeah, it's a uh, <laughs> right next door to Friends and Allies Brewing, and uh, it's basically a way for you to sample not just like the common cans that you see on the market, but then they have a lot of like the tap room, on- tasting room only kind of things, like a barrel aged cider. And okay, stuff. what time is it? Can we go like right now? <laughs> is it time? <laughs> <laughs> Ready for some awesome East Ciders. Okay, all right. Last chance to share some of your hidden gems that you have. Uh, uncovered maybe in the past year or two or you know where we might find you on a Saturday afternoon hanging out and enjoying a beer okay Um, well I have to definitely give kudos to St. Elmo Brewing it's in South Austin so it's not that far from where I live but then also it just has some fantastic beers the Carl Kolsch is one that I could just drink all day every day it's you know low ABV it's crisp and just everything that you want to drink you know in a Texas summer just kind of year round, really. Um, I love Jester King Brewery. It's a uh, you know, it's got that kind of destination brewery, the, the same way that family business is, because it's on several acres of land and um, you know, outside and family friendly. They have food, you know, just down the way from with Stanley's Pizzeria. There's so. a place in East Austin you mentioned that I've forgotten the name already. Oh, Southern Heights? Southern Heights, yeah. Yeah, yeah they just opened, too. Um, and in a part of the East Austin that doesn't really have uh, anything out there. So Where is it? Uh, the text, I can, I can never remember the name of it, but there's like that like ambulance depot is how I remember it, oh, basically. Yeah, well, we'll add it to the boozery. Yeah. Make sure people can oh, find it. Oh, Techni Center, that's it. Oh, the techni- okay, cool. Yeah. Well, um, Ari, where can people follow your coverage of breweries, cideries, uh, the brewing scene? Where, where can people find you? Um, well, all my stuff is on Austin360, and then also um, I plug everything on Twitter at uh, Ari Auber. And I also want to plug your Instagram account because you oh, I always yeah. find about the latest beer from your Instagram. Oh, yeah. Where, what's your handle there? Ari Auber as well. There you go. Thanks so much for coming in, Ari. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Cheers. Chaparral Ice in Burnett and Anderson has been around for more than 20 years. With the Olympics around the corner, we invited new owner Ryan Raya into the studio to find out what draws people to figure skating, hockey, and yes, even curling. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks for having me, Tolly. Ryan, you are from Massachusetts, and now you are in Texas. What do Texans misunderstand about ice sports? 
Well, I mean, most people just have a vision of ice sports as being like ice hockey. There's a lot of things that go on in the hockey rink that really can can appeal to a lot of different people. You don't have to be on skates. You don't have to have a whole special set of, I don't know, talents to be out there doing ice sports. The the people who get involved in there, uh, a lot of them are reformed soccer players. They're people that uh, didn't quite find their niche in football or soccer or volleyball or any of the other sports, a lot of the people that find their way to the hockey rink in Texas are kind of people looking for their clan. They're looking for their niche. They're looking for a group to be part of. And in Texas, you know, the ice sports, hockey, figure skating, curling, all that, it's a little different. So they end up, you know, keeping it weird, keeping it a little different, <laughs> hanging out in, in a hockey rink. So your love of ice sports came from hockey, but it sounds like Chaparral Ice has been around for longer than you've been in Austin, and that love came from figure skating. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah. I mean, I've only been in Austin for five years now. Before that, the the Collins family actually built that rink 20 years ago for their daughter. Hmm. Uh, they built it for their daughter because they got tired of driving up and down to San Antonio, and they had the means to to build a rink in Austin. And that family was actually a day-to-day presence for, you know, 12 to 15 of those years. Wow. But, you know, as their daughter got older, left, uh, they weren't really around as much. And that kind of opened the door for me to, to jump on in. So um, the Winter Olympics are coming up. Also, Itania just came out. People might have ice sports on the brain, be it figure skating, be it hockey, curling, whatever. How do you recommend people get started? Like, are there club teams? Are there classes? What do you recommend? Well, there's a lot of easy ways to do it. Uh, It's actually National Figure Skating Month this month. Uh, There's a lot of different try hockey, try figure skating for free. But really, the easiest way is to go to public skate, pay $9, cheaper than any, you know, movie or day out with your family, and uh, try it. I mean, go out there. You know, if you fall down, you get back up. It's mm-hmm. on ice. Mm-hmm. At least it's just frozen water. It hurts a little bit less, right? <laughs> but, you know, getting involved in, in different sports, curling, you don't have to skate. Uh, figure skating, you just need a pair of skates. Hockey, there's a lot of equipment involved, and we do all kinds of free events all year long. Nice. Um, I have a question for you as regards children, because I know that your big passion is youth hockey. What do you think is the cutoff age on the bottom end for kids? Because uh, my husband and I tried to take our three-and-a-half-year-old roller skating, and it was mildly successful. (laughs) But um, I imagine ice skating may even be more challenging. So do you recommend four and up, five and up, like well, a certain our, height. No, I get I get what you're asking. We actually face this question every single day because it's a new it's a new sport. You're not walking, right? Um, typically, well, our hard fast rule is we don't really let kids enroll them to learn to skate classes until they're three years old. But for me, what I'm looking for in a kid is can they actually cross over when they're walking and change directions without like sauntering or falling down? Right. Uh, if you don't have balance on land, it's going to be hard to have balance on ice and mm-hmm. just being able to get up off the ground without too much of a struggle is a big thing too because if you can't get up off the ground on land getting up off the ground on ice is kind of tough well and i've taken my kids roller skating and everywhere we go they have really tight wheels and we have a terrible time we actually don't go roller skating anymore because the the place near our house the skates are too tight you know what i mean mm-hmm. and so i feel like we actually might be more suited for ice skating because they could actually get some motion going well that's a big part of trying to bring a non-traditional game or non-traditional activity to Texas, right, mm-hmm. is uh, my last year since I took ownership of Chaparral Ice in January has been about making the facility and the experience more hospitable. 
We put heaters in the ceiling, so now that you can sit and watch your kids skate and not freeze. We turned over over half the ca- all over half of the rental skates to be brand new skates. So when you get out there, uh, you're one of the first people to wear them. They're not killing you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have that the first time anxiety and pain mm-hmm. that you typically have, like you're talking with your roller skates. Mm-hmm. And did you add a sports bar too? Uh, yeah, that's that's. Uh, wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you just found the reason why the hockey parents are super excited with the change in ownership. Okay. So what are you going to be looking forward to about watching the Olympics this year, personally? And then I'm sure you're going to be fielding a bunch of questions from people like me who are like, I want to have the next Nathan Chen in my house. Well, personally, I have I have two actually quite deep connections to this year's Olympics, unlike other years. Uh, I did spend a lot of time coaching, about 20 years, and a few of those years, about nine of them were in Virginia. Uh, there was um, a coach, Mike Donato. He's the uncle of one of the uh, Olympians that are going to be playing on the men's U.S. Olympic team, Ryan Donato. Um, his uncle and I, we coached for a couple of years together, so I got to know the family pretty well. Uh, Ryan went to Harvard, excelled, and made the U.S. World Junior Team, and then because there's no NHLers this year in the Olympics, uh, he got the uh, opportunity that kids used to have back with the Miracle on Ice mm-hmm. to be one of the younger kids to go out to the Olympics and play instead of all the professionals. Okay, fill us in. I'm sure we'll find this out in a couple of weeks, but why are there no NHL players this year? Well, actually, that is because the last couple Olympics, the NHL saw a huge rise in injuries because they had to mm. shorten the season, so they had back-to-back-to-back games a lot mm-hmm. during the season. Mm-hmm. And they saw injuries happen on the second or third night because you got bodies colliding at more than 30 miles per hour. Mm. Wow. That's that's actually one of the biggest draws to kids. If you go out to see the Texas Stars out and see their park at the mm-hmm. AGB Center, you put them down close to the ice and they see how quick they're zigging and zagging around the ice and how fast they move and how fast the puck moves. They just want to go fast. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest appeal to kids and people in general that come to see it, especially new Texans seeing the game. But the NHL says, sorry, we're not going to let our players <laughs> go to the Olympics. That'll be interesting. What about some of the other sports? Are, or You said you also had another connection. Yeah. Um, back in Virginia, there's a rink called Fort DuPont. And what they realized is that finding non-traditional markets to actually participate in the sport uh, was key to grow in the game in a non-traditional area. And Washington, D.C. in general, 20 years ago, looked a lot like Texas does today with not a whole lot of ice sports. I mean, Dallas has a bunch, but outside of that, there's not so much. Mm -hmm. Uh, They actually put 20,000 kids on the ice free every year. And one of those kids that was one of the first people in that program about 16, 17 years ago uh, Maui Bani, Bini, excuse me, uh, is actually just qualified uh, for the short, st- short track speed skating competition in the Olympics. Wow. Um, she's uh, from Ghana originally, and she immigrated in the U.S. Um, in one of the uh, less privileged communities in South Southeast D.C., and then went to Fort DuPont, found the freeway to get involved, and that's what you see. What I would love to do is involve, you know, African-American groups, Hispanic groups, find a way to open up this game that people are often intimidated by. And we saw over the last year, we've had the most actually Hispanic attendance to our public skate that we ever have. And that's the way that we can grow the game, grow any game really in, in Texas. Wonderful. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for making the time to come in and talk with us today about ice sports in the middle of Texas. No, it was great. I, I will do anything I can to help uh, grow the game and grow any game. Curling, figure skating, doesn't matter. As long as you're out on the ice and getting the free air conditioning during the summer, I welcome you over. Thanks, Ryan. Cheers. Thanks.
What exactly is the Bean to Bar movement? Author and food writer Megan Giller schools us on all things cacao. Welcome to the show, Megan. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you have just come out with a book detailing the fascinating history of chocolate. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, so the book is called Bean to Bar Chocolate, America's Craft Chocolate Revolution. And uh, as I say in the subtitle, chocolate is really having this revolution, kind of like craft beer or specialty coffee, where people are starting to make it from scratch using whole beans that they've sourced themselves um, and then roasting and grinding and turning it into chocolate and really focusing on flavor and um, the ethics of where they're sourcing the beans and that sort of thing. And so they're really creating the best tasting chocolate I've ever had uh, and, and really something that kind of changes how we think about chocolate too. So it's been very exciting for me to discover that. And then I uh, have been had a lot of fun sharing that with people through the book and then also through a book tour that I just, uh, am, actually, I'm still kind of on. <laughs> <laughs> As evidence today on our show. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, um, you know, what was interesting reading your book was kind of the um, exoticized allure that chocolate once held. And now it seems like you're saying that there's this more domestic trend. So when you say people are making it in themselves, do you specifically mean like here in the States, here in America, um, here in Austin or where you are, uh, Brooklyn, are making chocolates just literally at home? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think I should probably distinguish between like, so when we go to a chocolate shop, um, what we usually find are people who have bought chocolate that was pre-made by usually a big company and then melted it down and turned it into truffles or chocolate bars mm. or different types of candies. And all of that is amazing and delicious and an art and a skill. Um, but that's how we're used to seeing chocolate. The type of chocolate that I'm talking about now uh, that is more unusual is where people are starting with that whole bean and then creating bars from that. And that's the part that, that kind of has been exoticized. Like we usually, we think of Swiss or Belgian or French chocolate rather than, oh, hey, uh, that chocolate was made in California. But right. this bean to bar movement is very much, uh, it started in the U.S. in the 90s and really took off around 2005. That was like a big marker when it exploded. And, you know, around 2004, there were maybe five bean to bar makers in the country, and now there are over 200. And similarly, it's kind of changing the way people uh, make and interact with chocolate across the world. So now we're seeing bean to bar makers in Australia and New Zealand and Japan and actually even like the UK and stuff. It's really changing what's going on on the continent in Europe, too. So it's pretty cool to to watch people kind of rethink where this um, very essential food stuff comes from. We kind of think like, well, chocolate is chocolate is chocolate. But now it's all these other things, too, all these other flavors as well. Right, right. And can you actually grow beans here in the U.S. also? Or are there more? No. no yeah. So, yeah. So cocoa, uh, cacao grows 20 degrees above and below the equator, like in a band around the world. So all the beans are being grown in Central and South America and Africa and the Philippines and places like that. So they, they do have to be imported. So you would never have a completely, you know, 100 percent local chocolate, but it, it is being made locally, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. You know, um, you write a lot about social justice issues um, in your other writings. And, you know, like coffee, this question of where the beans are grown sort of um, 
you know, gets us into this place of if you are concerned about slavery and chocolate, which you talk about in the book, it's um, a well-documented, albeit horrifying phenomenon, you know, does fair trade cover it? You know, if you are, um, if you are, if you haven't gotten into making your own chocolate quite yet, (laughs) but you are interested (laughs) in the bean to bar movement or you're just a chocolate connoisseur, are there certain brands that you look for that have explicit ethics about the manufacturing and growing of their chocolate and beans? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's definitely something that's kind of the bedrock of the bean to buy chocolate movement is uh, using ethically sourced beans and paying farmers, you know, very fairly and much more uh, than either the market price or fair trade prices. They really want to make sure that that money is getting directly to the farmer. It's actually even called direct trade, which is something that the coffee industry, as you mentioned, has really pioneered. And now chocolate is kind of piggybacking on that, uh, which is very cool. So they'll pay, you know, five to seven times more than um, than the average like fair trade price or something like that. So uh, companies, there's so many companies uh, that are doing just really great work. But one of my favorites is called Askinosi Chocolate. And you can definitely find it in Austin, even at like the Whole Foods uh, on 6th Street. Um, and they really work very closely with their farmers to make sure that their farmers are being paid fairly and also getting kind of the support that they need in their communities um, and the, the, you know, the projects that they want finished, like a well for drinking water or building schools and getting laptops for those schools, those sorts of things. And they actually um, take trips every year to visit their farmers, if not more or not their farmers, but the farmers that, that they work with. Um, and so they've just done some really amazing social justice work in helping them kind of come up with business plan, five to 10 year business plans so that they can be sustainable on their own. So the thing I love about bean to bar chocolate and a lot of these brands is that the chocolate is really delicious too. So it's like you're buying it because of the social justice aspect, but then it's, you can also enjoy it so much because it is truly delicious. So that's a great band, brand. Another one that I really love is called Dandelion. And they actually have someone on staff whose whole job it is to just go and work with farmers and try to source really great beans and make sure that people are getting paid fair prices and are, are not living in kind of this abject poverty that a lot of cocoa farmers are living in. And I love that he calls his job, he's a bean sorcerer. <laughs> That's his official title. He's a bean sorcerer. Pretty clever. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Okay, well, Megan, to wrap up the interview, I want to ask you a um, you know somewhat Valentine's Day related question, and that is pairings. So I'm going to throw two or three Uh, beverages at you and you tell me the best uh, chocolate to pair them with and maybe this can give someone a fun date idea so uh the first one you talk in your book this to me seems like the most um you know uh unusual pairing beer beer like let's take like a um you know let's take like a porter a cold weather beer how would you pair a port like in austin i love 512 pecan porter how would you pair that with chocolate yeah, totally. So, I mean, porter is great. Porters are great because they have a lot of chocolatey notes a lot of times. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I think that what's fun is that porters and stouts in particular will pair with almost any chocolate. So, I really like um, to pair 
some porters like the one you mentioned actually with uh this chocolate uh call it's from a brand called fruition and it's their brown butter milk bar Mm. and so the two together is just kind of like a chocolatey velvety punch (laughs) in a really fun way so uh so that's probably where i would go with that uh, there are a lot of dark chocolates that pair with it too, but I think it's kind of fun to do a milk in that in that case. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, let's swing over a completely different direction. Rose, rose all day. What, what chocolate? Oh, okay, well, so, <laughs> would you pair so with that? So the one thing that's a little tricky. I know a lot of people love their chocolate and wine together, but um, when you start to get really nerdy about these tastings, a lot of people will talk about how chocolate and wine can clash because they both have so many tannins in them. Mm. And I haven't done a lot of rosé and chocolate pairings. Like something tells me that it might be a little easier with rosé than with, say, red wine. But um, I tend to go with fortified wines rather than rosés and whites or reds with chocolate. So like Amaro and Sherry and Port, all those sorts Mm. of things work really well. Yeah, I know. But, you know, it's one of those things, too. Like, if you find a rosé that works really well with a certain chocolate bar, like, go for it. It's it's just one of – it's a little bit harder to come up with a blanket uh, (laughs) pairing on that one. Sure. It sounds like you're saying you cannot go wrong. (laughs) Wine and chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Well, uh, Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. Congratulations on the success of your book, Bean to Bar Chocolate. We'll link to it in our show notes, listeners. And um, have a good one. Thanks so much, Megan. Yeah, thank you so much. And now it's time for a web report with Mr. Eric Webb. You've got a big story that kind of emerged online this week. What what happened? I went to the mountain and I came back with two stone tablets with perhaps the most viral story the statesman has ever published online and i really truly don't use that lightly it has gone absolutely bonkers i don't want to get too much into the specific numbers because hashtag trade secrets but (laughs) (laughs) a lot of people have read this story (laughs) (laughs) we believe you (laughs) okay so what happens so this is a story about a man named judge jack robeson uh oh robeson like Judge's robes? Robeson or Robison. Um, <laughs> Appropriate. The puns will become clear in a moment, listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a state district judge in Comal County, which is a county that our own Omar. That's where I pay my tickets and <laughs> live. He's yeah. just traffic tickets. <laughs> my, my taxes go to this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, this, ju- this judge who was uh, presiding over a, the trial of a beautiful woman accused of trafficking a teen girl for sex uh, said that God told him to intervene in jury deliberations to sway jurors to return a not guilty verdict. He uh, apologized to the jurors for the interruption, which is very polite, I think, and defended his actions by telling him, and quote, when God tells me I got to do something, I got to do it. And that quote was according to the Herald Zeitung in New Braunfels. Uh, so we published this story uh, on Friday, I believe the 19th of January, and uh, absolutely skyrocketed uh, straight to the top of our uh, <laughs> real-time uh, page view metrics uh, dashboard. Would you call it a miracle? I would call it <laughs> I would call it a miracle. I definitely would. I would say that I don't know about divine intervention in this particular case, but I would say in our case, it felt like divine intervention. Now, I don't know about God, but when Eric Webb tells me to retweet something, I retweet it. And you, you suggested that we retweet this because this was a, such an unusual mm-hmm. story. Now, let me ask you this. Texas is full of weird, like courtroom and legislative stories. We, you know, whenever the legal process happens in Texas, weird things happen. Uh, why this particular story? What stands out about this one that made it more viral than any other weird Texas law story we've we've published? So as soon as I saw this one come across the old Slack channel, 
I knew, <laughs> like you said, like it was going to go viral because it hits at one of the sort of emotional soft spots that we have as Texans, which is this intersection of religion and of government. And so, or church and state, if you want to use the technical phrase. <laughs> uh, but there is a real passionate idea around, you know, the role of religion in people's lives uh, in America, but also specifically in Texas, because this is God country. So this is about as, what's the right word for it? I don't want to say that it's um, that's brazen, but it is about as like obvious and about as clear and as unambiguous as you can get uh, when you're talking about a story that hits the intersection of church and state, because you're literally having a government official say, God told me to do this and try to influence the the uh, judicial system that he is presiding over. And what's fascinating is he was not successful. Now, I I have a theory about this, though. Mm -hmm. What if God did talk to him and all (laughs) the people that are passing the story are like, he's here, he came, he he, he intervened? Well, so you would think that maybe that some people in the comments would have come to his defense a little bit more. Somebody must have. And there was a little bit. <laughs> there was a little bit, but the overwhelming majority was people saying, "Oh, God, disbar him. Oh, like this isn't okay." As did I want to repoint out the jury. Mm-hmm. There was like, "Oh, hell no!" And actually went against his, um, you know, uh, sacred suggestion. Yes, so. it, the jury did go against his wishes, and they found uh, the woman guilty of continuous trafficking of a person, and later sentenced her to twenty-five years in prison. And it's worth mentioning. Uh, that this judge in question did recuse himself before the trial sentencing phase, and he was replaced by another judge. And the defendant's attorney asked for a mistrial, but was denied. Wow. Wow. Okay, so talk to us about how readers reacted specifically. Are there any choice comments on statesman.com? Sure. So there's a lot of uh, amateur or professional legal legal scholars in the comments. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Gay B. Phillips said, we have to cite these types of these type judges that do not follow protocol in the law. His religion does not give special oversight or authority. Every time this happens, shine a light on it so we can all be aware of who is undermining our justice system. Uh, Kyla French says, I'm a Christian and I can imagine being in this guy's shoes. So that's, you know, coming close to, to okay. empathy. But says, however, there is a jury for a reason. God very well may tell you that a defendant is innocent, but the jury decides whether or not to convict them. The end. And of course, the comedians showed up for this story, as you can imagine. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I suspect some of them might have been Omar behind. Uh, <laughs> one, behind. Of my, my, one of my 10 statesman pseudonyms <laughs> on the comments. Exactly. Uh Kevin Deal says, I'm going to use that line when I refuse to pay my taxes this year. Let's see how that turns out for me. Uh, Dennis Molina says, I think he just wanted to go to lunch badly that day. And Isaac De La Torre says, I wonder if someone in Florida is reading this and thinking thinking to themselves that we're all wackos here in Texas. So, um, okay, question to wrap up the segment. Have you or have you not ever prayed when you're about to get a speeding ticket? <laughs> I've never gotten a speeding I have. ticket. <laughs> really? I oh my never god! Speeding ticket. <laughs> wow! God actually okay. tells me to speed up. He's like, I, "You should not have to drive 55." I'm not gonna. I think God is Sammy Hagar is my God, basically. <laughs> no, I've, I've I truly have sent prayers to all the deities when I've gotten pulled over for speeding before. So far, it hasn't worked. I'm not going to claim any type of special heavenly protection, but I will say <laughs> I have never rece- never received a citation. Listeners, if you have thoughts on the God Judge story, please let us know. We would be fascinated to hear them. You know, it's weird, Tolly. Huh. I just saw a bolt of lightning in the recording studio. What, what's going on? Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> so be the last. So I love you so freaky. much. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Thanks, Eric. Peace be with you.
for a toast where we go around the table and recommend stuff you should be checking out right now. Addie, why don't you get us started? So I am still thinking about Jumanji, which I saw over what, the holidays. 15 years later? Or? Well, no, the more recent one oh, that is crushing one. the Star Wars movie. Um, and I, we went to go see it with my parents when I was up there over Christmas. And nobody, I was the last person who would think that I would be crying at the end of that movie. But there, it was just really touching. Everybody was really earnest. It was really funny. It was awesome to see The Rock play this little... He really inhibits the body, even though he's this big, bulky guy. His character is actually this very shy, geeky gamer. And so he he plays this juxtaposition really well where, you know, he's this gamer who just happens to surprise himself, you know, find himself in this body of this big, huge dude. But he still carries around all the same anxieties that he did. And it's about him learning to uncover this power and this strength that he has inside. And I love how it plays with time. And I'm not even a big video game person. So that hook didn't catch me. But the thing that really, you know, at the end, basically, well, I don't want to give away the end, but there's a, um, um, oh, gosh, um, Tom Hanks' son. What's his name? Colin Hanks. Colin Hanks has a scene at the very end of the movie that absolutely had me just bawling. And oh, really? it, Yeah, it was just sort of about like... Um, you know, if you got a chance to go back and do things over again, would you? And what would that look like? And what relationships would you get to enjoy? And which ones would you miss, miss out on? So this is—is is this like a sequel to the original movie? No, not a it's sequel. Complete... It's—it's a new—it's a new in, uh, reimagination, reimagining of the movie. But basically, you know, the first, the original movie in 1995 started with the discovery of this game that had been hidden, and that kind of plays on that now. And I'm sure that you could probably make the case that they're somehow connected. But and, um, that, and now it's a video game. And now it's uh, yeah, it is a video game. That's right. And okay. then um, and then. Somehow the characters get, you know, basically the people, the kids who are playing the game get sucked into the game. And in order to get out of the game, they have to hook up with another kid who got hooked in the game a long time ago. And so that's where that's where all the emotions start getting tied in. So I loved it. Ari, you said you've seen it. Oh, yeah. Back me up on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's good. Um, anyway, so that's my, my recommendation. Got to take my kids to that. That sounds good. Okay. Ari, what are you into these days? Well, um, I've been trying to get back into reading. I used to be a huge bookworm and then just you know, things get in the way. And so last year I started uh, rereading the Harry Potter series and then from there went on to other things. And um, my uh, husband's grandma gave me the book, A Man Called O for Christmas. And uh, I'd been seeing that it was like a repeat on the New York Times bestsellers list. And I was like, okay, I'll read it. doesn't really seem like my kind of book, but it's actually really, it's, uh, I guess a good word for it is charming. It's Mm -hmm. about this kind of curmudgeonly old man who you know lost his wife and he just doesn't know where to go now that he's you know living without her and then um this these uh crazy new neighbors come into the neighborhood and kind of reinvigorate his uh i guess his zest for life or whatever do you know anything about the author or uh, where the book comes from um I believe it's Sweden. That's what I was going to say. I thought yeah. it was Scandinavian. Yeah, yeah. Scandinavian, yeah. And it was kind of a, one of those sleeper things. Like it was on the, it was published in the U.S. for a while before it finally started wow. catching on like wildfire here. So. Well, that's a good book recommendation. Okay, Omar, what, what are you into? Well, this one I should have probably recommended like two months ago uh, when, it, when it was coming back for its second season. But uh, The Good Place uh, is an NBC sitcom. It's got a great pedigree. Uh, Mike Schur, who is the showrunner. Uh, previously did Parks and Recreation. He worked on The Office uh, before that, and he did Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So those are three solid sitcoms. This show is different, though, because it's sort of upending all of the rules of what a sitcom is supposed to be, that it's supposed to have sort of an arc. Like, it it is bonkers this season. Uh, The first season, the premise is very simple. Kristen Bell... Uh, wakes up and she is in heaven. She's in the good place. Um, and Ted Danson is sort of her guide. She goes. She's get taken to this beautiful neighborhood and meets her soulmate. And it's supposed to be this idyllic, you know, like, you know, this is your afterlife. 
uh, it turns out she's not supposed to be there, that she was actually a pretty crappy person and, you know, is and got in by accident. And then the whole first season plays out on that premise of, like, she's not supposed to be there. She's having to hide it. She's trying to learn how to be a better person. And you think, oh, that's a pretty basic, okay premise for a sitcom. Okay, sure, I can go with that. Um, but then there's a huge twist at the end of the first season that sort of upends everything you've seen up to that point. And the second season has sort of been reinventing what it is to be a sitcom with every episode. Like wow. it has just gone bonkers crazy. And, you know, I think in lesser hands, in hands of a less experienced, you know, set of TV writers and showrunners, it would be like a huge mess. Like, mm-hmm. no, you would never know what you were going to get. But there is a kind of a through line through the whole second season of like, you know, there's a clear goal. There's definitely something that they want to happen. But the rules keep changing every episode. Mm-hmm. You know, it keeps getting rebooted and changed. And it's, I think it's become the most interesting comedy on TV right now. Just every week you have no idea where it's going to go and, and what to expect. But you've got this baseline of like Ted Danson and Kristen Bell and and this really great cast and really sharp writing. Um, and then, you know, the other thing, the reason I'm bringing it up this week is because, unfortunately, the Jacksonville Jaguars lost to the New England <laughs> Patriots. There's been this running gag through the whole show about Blake Bortles, the the quarterback mm-hmm. of the Jacksonville Jaguars. <laughs> and the joke on the show was that they were such a bad team that they would never, ever win the Super Bowl, you know, or get anywhere. And now all of a sudden they're like a great team. And so the they show has sort of had to go Bowl. back on itself because like Blake Bortles was like a running gag on the show of like a bad quarterback on a bad team. And they've had to sort of backtrack on that. It's been really interesting to watch that sort of become a meme outside of the show within the show. It's, it's been interesting. So The Good Place, you can find the first season on Netflix. Uh, it's a short first season. You can get through it probably in an afternoon. And then go to NBC and watch the second season because it is probably the best comedy on TV right now. It is just amazing. You've inspired me to pick it back up. I saw the first few episodes. but uh, It goes some, to some interesting places. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much, Omar. <laughs> yeah. That's our show. She's Addie. He's Omar. I'm Tali. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter at loveaustin360. I love you so much. The Austin 360 podcast is produced by Alyssa Vidales. The show is made with support from features editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin 360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com. You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672. This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Lexus of Austin. We couldn't do the show without you, dear listener, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your artisan chocolate bars. Until next week, we'll see you picking up a box of Longhorns at Lamb's Candies. (laughs) 